you're good to come. Okie doke. <clears throat> All righty. Uh, thanks for coming out again tonight. I realize that it's a, a little bit later, and after a really good full day, I'm sure if your day was anything like my day, Mine started at 5.30 this morning. It's been going all day. Uh, went back to our room one time today and haven't been back, so I'm going to sleep well tonight when we're all done. And I don't know if it's even, because I normally get up at 5.30 anyway, but for me, it's all the lack of escalators at Pepperdine that kind of tires me out. I'm like, come on now. Uh, I think we need to take up a collection. I started telling Jerry Rushford that 20 years ago. Uh, we need to put some escalators between Firestone and here. That would make it great. Anyway, that does where you go. I'm glad you're here. I'm honored and hope that you will be blessed tonight as we continue to think about uh, Jonah's beef with God. I'm not going to repeat what we talked about last night. Uh, how many people were here last night? Almost everybody, so I'm just going to assume that you remember what we said and hop on into um, where we're going to begin. But we're going to have a prayer and then jump on into, into Jonah. Father God, uh, we are grateful uh, for what Jonah confesses, and he means it as a bad thing, Father, but we want to embrace it, that you are a gracious God, that you are merciful, that you are full of hesed, slow to anger, and that you relent at punishing. And we say salvation belongs to you, and that um, we're so grateful that that confession is true. And Father, we pray that it will be more than just an academic thing, that it will not be a religious thing, but that when we believe that you are indeed the gracious and merciful, slow to anger God, the one who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, that we too will be people who are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, and that we too will forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that we too will relent. That we will be though, those of your people who don't go just the second mile. But we go all the way because of grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, we're going to begin tonight uh, talking about love too deep, Jonah's beef with God. And I said last night that Jonah 2.8 really is in a uh, one line, the message of the book. And I've made the case that uh, the message of the book is different than the prophet himself. Y'all remember that. So <clears throat> that's important because this is true. Salvation does belong to Yahweh. And uh, even though Jonah confesses that, uh, he may be more religious than he is gracious. All right, so <clears throat> what we're going to do, I would hope if I turn this on. All right, just to read this, I will repeat from last night. <clears throat> 
In remembering our story, we remember who we are. We find ourselves and we discover who we are. We are a blessing. So the book of Jonah is, as we said last night, is in constant dialogue with two foundational stories in Israel's history. That, uh, that is Abraham, and as we're going to see tonight, it's going to be the Exodus, especially a specific episode in the Exodus story that is going to come up. So when um, the author is telling this story, he's bringing this stuff up because he knows we know it. The music is in our head. Okay, the music's in our head, and we are hearing the contemporary stuff through this back here, and we're trying to make some kind of uh, connection between our founders and ourselves and asking the question, who are we? God created us as his people to be a blessing in the world. Are we a blessing, or as we go on, are we a curse? Okay. And I really believe that that is something that we must wrestle with, not just in their day in the post-exilic community, not just in the first century, not just in the 15th century, but those of us who are in the Gentile church, we need to continue uh, asking this question. What is it that God has created us to be? And so, again... In remembering our story, we remember who we are. We find ourselves and discover who we are. And who we are is a blessing. God created and he called Abram in Genesis 12 to be a blessing. And then we remember when we looked at Genesis 19 last night, actually chapter 18, when uh, he says, you know, should I keep this away from Abram or should I talk to him? He says, no, he's going to grow up, and he's going to be a mighty nation. So I need to tell him, because all nations are going to be blessed through him. And how are those nations going to be blessed? Uh, because he is going to intercede for them. He's going to pray for them. He's going to be uh, the advocate. So in a sense, Abram becomes uh, the prototypical priest. He's the prototypical priest. And Israel, as we're going to see are created to be, as Yahweh says in Exodus 19, uh, you will be for me. The whole world belongs to me. Nineveh, by the way, is mine. The whole world belongs to me, but you will be my special possession. You will be for me a holy priesthood, like Abraham. Abraham is this priest. Israel will be a priesthood. What does the priesthood do? That's what we're going to be wrestling with. So, I want to remind you of the mashups just real quick. Uh, that's what scholars use that term of intertextuality. So, uh, math mashups are when a later artist is incorporating earlier classics to heighten the impact. A piece of music, this is the actual definition, a piece of music created by digitally overlaying an instrumental track with a vocal track from a different recording or a different yeah different recording and i gave some examples like vanilla ice <clears throat> uh using queen and david bowie uh kid rock all summer long uh, leonard skinnard uh bad wolves zombie um 
that was done by the Cranberries in the 90s. And uh, Dolores actually sings in this particular uh, one. Or the Cleptones, Uptime, Downtime, or their particular album, they came out. And they incorporate the Beastie Boys, Aretha Franklin, uh, Metallica. And everybody knows those songs. And it's almost the whole album is uh, mashups. And it's probably one of the best <coughs> uh, mashup albums. <coughs> so these, this earlier art is essential to the message of the current artist. And the book of Jonah is loaded with this stuff. And we would be here for many, many, many days to actually work through all of these different mashups. But we're going to call attention to this, the important ones in chapter 3 and chapter 4. <clears throat> so as we're going into chapter 3, Nineveh, not Nineveh, but Jonah, as we left him in chapter 2, he is at least... Uh, Praying the hymnal. Remember we said he had the hymn book memorized. Y'all remember that? Okay. So he's putting all these things together to sound religious to God. And uh, <clears throat> uh, the fish vomits Jonah out. Now you can think about that in a lot of different ways. Okay. I have a cat. His name is Casper. And anytime I approach Casper and I want to give Casper a snack, and how many people have a cat? Cats have to decide they want your snack, okay? And <clears throat> you have this snack, and it may, you would think, oh man, this is going to be, I'm treating my cat great. And you offer this cat the snack, and the cat makes this violent reaction to it. It's like, man, your stomach's going to come right out. And his mouth opens up wider than jaws, you know. And he's like, <laughs> you know, and like, I'm like, dude, man, I just spent money on this. Okay. Well, when you think about that, that's what the fish does. This is not a pleasant image, okay, that is from here. Uh, <clears throat> this word that is used for vomiting out is uh, one of those words. Okay, we talked about those. It occurs in other con and In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the word vomit is never a good word. It's always negative. Uh, but it's frequently associated with the land. In Leviticus, <clears throat> uh, chapter 18 especially, verses 25 through 30, the Lord speaks of uh, talking to the Israelites through Moses why he got rid of the Canaanites because of their grotesque practices and other kinds of things. And he says, and the land vomited them out. Okay. Then it goes on and it says, and if you do these kinds of things, the land will vomit you out. Now, what I want us to su suggest, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but because I believe that in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is not repenting. There's no penitence there at all. He is religious. He is not penitent. Okay? That when Jonah offers his prayer, and there's a whole lot of I there, and even blaming God, like in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, you cast me into the deep. Okay, well, it seems like he wanted that to happen, right? 
And he's running away, and he's blaming, he's blaming God. You know, it's your fault. You did all this kind of stuff. Um, and then he says in verse 4 that I was driven away from your presence. Listen to the language. He is quoting the Psalms. He's putting them all together. But he's doing it in a way that is, I want to sound religious because this is an amazing grace. This isn't just as I am. This is whatever. And he finishes his prayer. And God's reaction to it is Casper's. Okay? God vomits what Jonah has done. All right. So now he's on dry land. And uh, we don't need to read this in here. There, between chapter 2 and chapter 3, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Uh, how long did it take? Okay, if we just assume that when the fish vomited Jonah out, that he suddenly said, oh, man, I better go do this. I think the real idea here is that Jonah still needed to be told to go. Okay? That's, that's the real idea. He still does not want to go. And God now says, you need to go. Again, so, but anyway. And what happens here, he's told to go to Nineveh. And as I've said to you last night, some of this stuff is just simply lost in translation. Uh, because we have those words, those poly words. You remember that? All right. <clears throat> so... Your English translation is going to say, uh, like the Norse V, which I typically like, the Norse V, uh, says, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city. Most of your, probably your English Bible is going to say that. Okay? Uh, the NIV might say a mighty city or whatever. But uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, that's what it says. Go at once to Nineveh, that great city. But here the author has changed the words just a little bit, all right? And so what we have, uh, at that time, Nineveh was a great city to God. Okay, so in Hebrew, there's what they call the, the, the superlative, and this happens on a, not an infrequent basis in the Hebrew Bible, where this word is normally the word God. And it's thrown out there, and it means the big, the mighty. And as I said last night, some words can mean, has a couple of different possibilities, and we're supposed to say what? Yes. Y'all remember what? Yes. yes. Okay. So the first time we encounter this, again in chapter 1, verse 2, it just says it's a big city. Nineveh was a big city. Los Angeles is a big city. Okay. That's what Nineveh was. But in Jonah's second commission, the word is changed. And now you can read this as a superlative where it says, yes, indeed, Nineveh is a big city. Nineveh is a mighty city. But you can also read this, and that's how Jonah's thinking. This is just a big, big city. But now you're reading this, and it's like, it's a mighty city God. But we already know that's not true of who? Jonah. It's not a mighty city to Jonah. It's not an important city. It's, so what we have here is that great city, as I already said in chapter 1, verse 2, is Nineveh a big important city 
Or is Nineveh a treasured city by God? Well, as we know the end of the story, we know that Nineveh is treasured by God. Okay? And that's how we're supposed to hear it. Jonah goes one way. It's just a big city. And the author wants us to understand that to God, it is a what? An important city. It's treasured by the Lord. It is special to the Lord, which would be offensive to Jonah. Quite big. And so we have to, have to see this. This is a go to that city. It's important to the Lord. This city is important to the Lord. And we have to remember, uh, and I want to make this point real quick. If we come to this book and we just think Jonah is just some small-town bigot, we're missing the point. Okay? Uh, Jonah has no problem with, with Hesed. He has no problem with grace, as long as it's to the people he approves of. Okay? Now, the Ninevites are not just your next-door neighbor. The Ninevites are not the Baptists. The Ninevites are not the Methodists. They are not the Catholics. Okay? They're not even the wrong kind of Jews. The Ninevites are the people who are murdering your people. The Ninevites are the enemy. They are not just some enemy. They are the ones who destroyed your city, take your family, haul them off to Assyria, put those hooks in their mouth, and they rape your children, they rape your wives, and they burn the rest of them at the stake. That's who these people are. We got to remember that. Okay? They're not the Moabites. They're not even the Egyptians. The Assyrians were renowned in the ancient world for their cruelty, not just to Israel, but from basically the steppes of Russia to Iran, from Egypt all the way to what, again, we would call Tehran, Israel, uh, Iran. They had a reputation. So, they're treasured by God. And when we start thinking about this at this particular level, we start seeing some things about Jesus, too. Okay? Somebody comes along to you and says, hey, man, I want you to take my backpack. Remember, that's a Roman soldier. And Jesus lived in an occupied territory. Like the West Bank today is an occupied territory. Jesus grew up in an occupied territory. Who was the occupiers? The Romans. And the Romans could do pretty much whatever they want to do. Now, if he comes along and he tells you, take my backpack, which he could do, I want you to do what? Volunteer for the second mile. Okay? That's, was, I guarantee you, that was did not win Jesus bounty points. Okay, so, the answer is yes. <clears throat> So, again, when we're looking at this text, the message that I am about to give you, okay, I want you to go to that great city to God. I want you to proclaim the message that I, that is Yahweh, am about to tell you, all right? So, what I'm going to do, I'm stepping back because the author of the book knows the people reading the book have the music in their head, all right? They have the VBS stuff going on in their head. They have the story in their head. Unfortunately, we 
many centuries away because we have grown up in the churches of Christ, and not only that, we've grown up in our Protestant traditions where most of the time we have very little Old Testament flowing in our DNA. I hope that's not a overstatement. I think it's true. So, in the prophets, we find the other prophets addressing Israel, of course, and addressing Judah, but they also address foreign nationalities. And they do this on a regular basis. And every single time they do, they have what is later scholars call messenger speech. You don't have to know that to go to heaven. But it is really cool to know that. Okay, it's called messenger speech. And so, to give you a couple of examples of this, and we could go literally another hour and a half on this. Uh, there's an oracle for Damascus, says the Lord. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1. Oracle for Babylon and Edom in Isaiah chapter 21. But it says, and says the Lord. Okay. Or if your English translation, it's going to say, thus said the Lord, or something along those lines. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, you, so that, that's in Isaiah, but you go to the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's got all these, whole sections on these, these nations. And so it says, to Babylon, okay, says Yahweh, hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so when Jeremiah is talking to Babylon, he clearly says, this is the word of the Lord. Or the Lord says, and Isaiah does it, Amos does it, on and on and on. You can go for this. And every single time, there are no exceptions to this. Okay? Thus says the Lord. That's the messenger speech. The prophet is the messenger. They do not preach their own word. And they identify it as somebody else's word. It's not my word. In fact, Jeremiah makes it very clear that he doesn't want to say the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 20. And when I try not to say your word, I stuff it down inside and you overwhelm me. Your, fire, your word becomes a fire in my bones and you consume me. Now, we sometimes look at that and think it's all good. And, but Jeremiah is actually complaining. In that text. So the messenger speech. But when we come to the book of Jonah, what do we find? The narrator tells us explicitly that Yahweh was to give Jonah, that's Jonah, remember that from last night, one of those words, those poly words, is it Jonah, the historical person, is it peace, people of God? Uh, the message I am giving you. We, it says this. The, this is the entire message of Jonah's speech. Forty more days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, you have gone to church all your life. You've got the music in your head. You're expecting something else. What are you expecting to hear? The word of the Lord. Or, says the Lord, are you following me? But what is not there? What is not there? 
and it's not there. It is glaringly not there. There is no Yahweh. There is no, not even any God. Okay? And this goes back again. Jonah is identified as the, the true one. Remember chapter 1, verse 1? The faithful one. And we learn that he already rebelled against God. He's flying away. And now we get to this place where every prophet, from Elijah to Amos to Jeremiah to, to Micah to even little bitty Obadiah, they always say the word of the Lord. And all of a sudden, we get this person who is going to Nineveh, who is said by the narrator, you're going to say what I tell you to say. And we get 40 more days, and Nineveh shall be overturned. And that is it. The text does not say, this is the word of the Lord. I just want you to deal with that. Okay? And I think you must deal with it. We must not defang the text. As Walter Brueggemann always says, deal with the text. Let the text stand. Our, what we want to do is impose our piety upon Jonah, and we want to save Jonah from something. What we really want to do is save ourselves. Okay? And so the question here, when this is all said and done, and this is the irony, is by the time it's all said and done, we have no idea whether this is actually what God told Jonah to say. All right? So, now God is going to use this. God's going to use it. But we do not know that this is what God, or Yahweh, I don't want to say Yahweh, told Jonah to say. Now, what we have, as I've said, what is missing uh, is this messenger speech. It is not there. You can read it from now until the end of time. It'll, you'll never find it. And this is something else that we have, to, we have to not import into the book. Okay? Yonah, in the context, the narrator of this book, never calls Jonah a prophet. Never. Now, we know he is from some other book called Second Kings. But you remember us saying last night that Jonah, the historical Jonah, is separated from the book of Jonah by like 400 years. Y'all remember that? Okay. So, again, the narrator of the book never identifies Jonah as a prophet. That's... We're just going to, is he the faithful one? Is he the true one? Are we the true ones? Well, what's going to happen and what we find out is we're, we've got this big question mark here. But anyway, what happens with the message that he actually says? We're, okay, this is what Jonah said, at least according to the narrative. We don't know whether it's actually what God said for him to say, but it's what has been said, and God is going to use it. 
Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I want to make this as personal as, as I possibly can. I probably have misrepresented God on more than one occasion. Is that true of anyone else? So, poor old Jonah, who, as I've said last night, I believe is, is the representative of all Israel. Jonah is Israel, not just the person. That sometimes we misrepresent God. Sometimes we are a whole lot more forthcoming on judgment in determining people's eternal destinies than God ever gave us permission for. Would you agree? Okay. Sometimes we have enemies. We sing about amazing grace just as much as Jonah does. Okay. And then we turn around and sometimes, particularly, and they don't even have to be Ninevites who rape and kill and pillage. It may be just somebody who I don't particularly like their, their sexual lifestyle, and I will condemn them in the Lord's name and happy to do so. Would you agree? Okay, I'm just putting this out here because I think that this is very applicable to our life as the people of God. So, going to zero in on this word that Jonah uses that we don't know whether actually God told him to say. But it's an interesting word. It's one of those words that we have said over and over and over that it's a word that is polyvalent. It is a word that, man, Jonah's going to use it one way and he thinks one thing and it turns out that it means something completely different. So, this statement that Jonah says, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I just want to point out that 40 more days, or 40 days, is a very common biblical number, isn't it? It's all over the place. And Jonah knows his Bible. We made that point last night. Jonah knows his Bible. He's just throwing something out there. In 40 days, they wandered around to in the wilderness for 40 years, they did 40 this, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, the whole time your 40 is all over the place. Okay, so Jonah's pulling out a good Bible number. In 40 days, God's gonna, he's gonna blow the crap out of you. Okay, that's what he's gonna do. He's gonna overturn you. Okay, that's what he thinks. That's what he thinks. That's what Jonah intends. But again, we don't know whether that's what God actually told him. This word, Jonah buys into the biblical story, and it goes all the way back to that text we looked at last night in Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, in that narrative, we find when, when Abraham intercedes on behalf of the guilty the citizens of Sodom are guilty. But Abraham becomes the priest and he prays for the guilty. But it says there that then Yahweh reigned on Sodom, fire from heaven, and he overthrew those cities. And this word occurs three times in that Context. I've given you the references here, Genesis 19.25. All right? So that's what Jonah thinks. 
God's going to blow you. Jonah is looking for a Sodom and Gomorrah moment on Nineveh. Okay? That's what he thinks. Hiroshima is going to take place. Nagasaki is going to be, this is, this is going to be the firebombing of Dresden. Okay, this is, this is what's going to happen. God is going to bring it down. Well, however, we believe in what? Polyvalence, right? So it's so interesting that this particular word, and, and so God's going to say to Jonah, you know, Jonah, that's the word you chose. Uh, we're going to go with it. All right, and now this also is good ministry stuff because God can take our our foibles and our misrepresentations of Him and bring something wonderful out of it. Okay, and so what we find here uh, again, uh, Jonah never mentions Yahweh or any other god, for example, in that particular section. But here, here we find this word just a couple of. Not very far away from Jonah in the book of the 12. And it says, and talking about the cities of the plain. Sodom and Gomorrah are part of the cities of the plain, okay? Remember that. So it says, okay, how can I give you up, Ephraim? Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel, right? Okay. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I make you like Zeboim? Now, who are, who are these these are the cities of the plain, Genesis 19. They are blown up with Sodom and Gomorrah. This, that's, this, this whole image is bringing up Sodom and Gomorrah in Hosea. And notice what happens. My heart is overturned within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. And then God goes on and says, for I am God and not a human being. You know, this is an awesome text. But you want to know what? This word right here is this word right here. It does not mean that you have to be blown to bits. Okay? It simply means changed. God's heart was changed. God didn't blow, God did not nuke his own heart, right? God, God didn't blow it up. His heart was overcome, changed within him. I have decided that I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And so God, and I want you to notice this because this is what happens in the book of Jonah. God saves his prophet from being a false prophet, even if he chose to say something God did not tell him to say. Jonah thinks they're going to be destroyed, but Yahweh says they have indeed been overturned. They have been changed. They have been renewed, like my own heart. So, this is another example of those polys that are in, in the book. And I think this is just so cool right here um, that we just have to have this in the back of our head, what God is doing, because this is a mashup, okay? The author knows that we know this. And he's like, okay, I need to hear 
that Jonah says one thing, and the the author who is singing this song to the people in the post-exilic community, and he's looking at them, and he's kind of winking. Let me tell you what Jonah did. And he throws out that particular word and says, we know there's more to that word than Sodom. It's God's heart that was overthrown. God's heart was overthrown. It was changed. Connected with the word compassion, which is going to come up again in the book of Hosea, uh, Hosea, but Jonah. So as we move through the text here, uh, we're going to find that this, this mashup is going to take place, and it's going to be a Moses, and it's going to be uh, the Assyrians, Ninevites uh, kind of thing uh, that is going on. <clears throat> and Moses is a pretty important person, right? Uh, I, would, I would say that Moses is a pretty important person. So when we get into the text, before we get the David, I mean the Moses thing, we got a David thing. And it says, uh, all of a sudden the king goes on and everybody uh, dons sackcloth and ashes, <clears throat> which is very familiar to people who know about the Hebrew Bible, right? That is a sign of humility and repentance. Job does this, right? He gets on sackcloth and ashes. And, and there's another person who does this, David. David, after he abused somebody, he raped Bathsheba. That's what he did. He abused her. He used his power to pulverize another human being. And Nathan comes along and he says, let me tell you a little bitty story about a little baby ewe lamb. And if you haven't seen a little bitty ewe lamb, they're just, they're just this big. You know, they're not much bigger than Casper. And, and you came along and you have thousands of them. You can do whatever you want. But you come along and you steal this poor man's, his pet. He loves it. You steal it from him. And David gets all mad because he's supposed to be what? He's supposed to be the protector of the poor. That's his job. That's why he's king. That's his, that's, that's, his job is not to have parties and go golfing. His job is to protect the poor. Okay? And all of a sudden he says, who's the man? And Nathan says what? You remember, 2 Samuel, he says, you are the man. And all of a sudden, David says, I have sinned against the Lord and against him only. And then Nathan says, well, you know, there's going to be some serious consequences about this. This, this child is going to die. And what does David do? He goes out and sits on the ash heap. He refuses to eat for a week. And then, of course, the, the men come to him and say, the baby's died. And so suddenly he gets up and he washes his face and he eats. And they say, why are you doing this? And he said, you know, while the baby was with me, who knows? God would have mercy upon us. And the writer knows that you know that story. This is the mashup. And all of a sudden, the king of Nineveh is quoting David. Now, the king of Nineveh in the story never heard of David. But the people listening to the story have heard the other song. And now we're making the connection between the two. Are you all following me here? Okay. 
And all of a sudden, the irony is that the king of Nineveh is quoting King David. Who knows? And by the way, I just want to throw this out here. The king believes that Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, salvation does belong to God. We cannot dictate it. Maybe he will change his mind. After all, it belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants, uh, whoever that deity is. So, and there's this other thing floating on in the background because in chapter 2, Jonah says, those who uh, serve idols forsake the hesed that could bear, be theirs. Now, he's thinking about the pagan sailors in chapter 1. We come along, though, and this is going to become much more evident here in just a second. We're the people of God. We know our story. We're remembering our story as he's telling the story of Jonah and Nineveh. Because Israel's foundational story is that we committed idolatry. God in his mercy rescued Israel, a people who were so worthless that it was state-sponsored terrorism and legal to throw their babies into the river. You were nothing. That's who you are. And the story of the Exodus grinds that in our face. You were nothing. You have no leg to stand on. And Ezekiel comes along and tells it the other way around. In the Exodus story, it's the little boys thrown away. In Exodus chapter 16, it's the little girls. In Exodus 16, you're always walking through this field, and it's a very graphic story. You're always walking through this field, and he finds this abandoned little girl who's just born, kicking in her own blood still. And Yahweh walks by, and what does he do? And he says, hey, live. Live. And so he takes her and he washes her and feeds her and clothes her. And she grows up in the story in Exodus 9, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. And he buys her the finest jewelry. And as she grows up, he falls in love with her. And then he chooses her to be his bride. And what does she do? She uses the very clothes that he buys from Victoria's Secret and the very perfume that he provides for her to go off and cheat with the bellhop, which is the story of the golden calf. What they did was when they came out of this awesome moment when you were a nobody and I chose you and made you my special possession and I will be your God and you will be my people, that is Marriage language. I will be your husband and you will be my wife. And so God goes, he takes Moses up on the mountain to get the plans for the honeymoon suite because God is going to move from the top of the mountain and he's going to come down. He, and after you get married, what do you do? You usually do what? You live together. And God's going to come and he's going to live with Israel. He's no longer going to be some distant God way over there. He's, now he's going to be an imminent God, and he's going to live in the middle of Israel, and I will dwell in your midst, he says. And so while he's up there on that, that mountain, the story Ezekiel tells is happening. And Israel tells Amos, not Amos, but Aaron, 
we don't know what happened to this dude. We want you to make us some gods. You remember that? Exodus 32. Make us some gods. And so Aaron does. He says, give me your gold and your jewelry, the stuff from Ezekiel. Give me your gold and your jewelry. And he fashions gods. And all of a sudden they start singing and dancing around it. And Yahweh says, whoa, whoa, what is happening? And see, before I got divorced, I never understood this passage. Okay, I never did. I just thought God was pissed off and he's just a bad, a bad God. He's just mad. People who talk like that have never been crushed. Spurned love is not anger out of just anger. It's not. God's hurt. God is crushed. And if you've ever had your loved one cheat on you, you might understand that. And all of a sudden, he says, the idols, the golden calf, is part of Israel's foundational story. You, people who serve those idols, forfeit the hesed that could be yours. But this foundational story for Israel is that we are the ones who cheated on God. We are the ones who embraced the idols. And we are the ones who found hesed. God gave it to us while we were guilty. This is so important. And every time you tell the story of the Exodus, every time you take the Passover, this is part of the story. It's like, okay, so, and I want you to remember that. Moses, like Abraham at Sodom, in Exodus 32, he becomes a priest. He intercedes for Israel. Let me sit here in my anger so I can destroy them and I will make a great nation out of you. I can still keep my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's be done with them. And Moses does what Abraham did. Rather than God saying, okay, well, you just go do whatever you want, God. What does Moses do? He says, well, remember, Abraham said, well, you going to do this? What if, what if there's 50 people in that city? What, what if there's 40? So what Moses does is say, you know what? What are the Egyptians going to think? That's what he says. Well, who cares what the Egyptians think? They're the ones who said, who is Yahweh that they need to listen to me? I'm, right? Like, who, who cares what the Egyptians think? Their gods are nothing. <laughs> but and then he says, remember. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and all of a sudden, Moses changes the name. We expect Jacob, and he changes the name. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he says, your servants how you swore to them by your own self, saying, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heavens, and all this land shall they shall inherit forever. And notice what it says here. And the Lord changed his mind about the evil that he planned to bring on his people. And you want to know what? That's quoted by the author of Jonah. 
Right here, let's read it. When the Lord or God saw what they did, they turned from their evil ways. Actually, back up to verse 9. Uh, yes, no, in verse 10. Uh, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the evil that he said he would bring upon them. There's only two words that are different between Exodus 32:14 and Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. And that is the word Yahweh is in the Exodus text, and it's God in the Jonah text. And it changes from my people to them. Everything else is identical. It's like this. Now all of a sudden we are suddenly confronted by the author of the book. We know the story. And in the story, suddenly we find that as the author is telling us, that God has forgiven the Ninevites on the exact same basis as he did Israel. And this is Jonah's beef with God. You have made them equal to us, which is, shows up in a parable by Jesus. Most of us like grace until it's given to people who make them equal to us. They don't even know who you are, God. We've been working our butts off. As the older brother's going to say, I've been slaving away for you. Okay? But here it comes and it says, God changed his mind on the basis of the prayer from Moses, who is doing the exact same thing that Abraham did. Who is the priest? Moses is the priest. He's going to practice the justice and righteousness of God. He's going to come before God, and he's going to intercede for the guilty. Abraham is interceding for the guilty. That's what priests do. Priests intercede for the guilty. And Moses knows Israel is guilty. But God, you said, and you didn't say, if we were good. Now, so Moses is praying, and now when God told Jonah to go cry to Nineveh, the invitation there is for Jonah to do what Abraham did, to do what Moses did. What Abraham did for Sodom, what Moses did for Israel, you need to do for Nineveh. That's how you will bless the nations and show forth justice and righteousness. This is deep stuff, but this is who are you? We are the people of God. We were created to be a blessing. Now, blessing doesn't mean we're going to. Everybody's going to be baptized. Everybody's going to uh, attend our local church. It doesn't mean that at all. It means we're going to be a blessing. A blessing. 
And you are supposed to be a blessing. Why? Because I rescued you and rescued or redeemed slaves ought to make good neighbors. Are you following me? All right. So um, I could go forever on this. This is good stuff. At least to me, it's good stuff. So, uh, but here are these, these mashups going on in this text where I'm hearing this along with the earlier classic, the stuff I'm singing all of the time in church. Every time I take the Passover, every time I go through uh, uh, the Passover, or as we're going to see in a moment, the Feast of Tabernacles comes up, I'm reliving the story. And why are we wandering around in the wilderness anyway in those tabernacles? Because we were disobedient. Right? But even while we were disobedient, Moses says in the book of Deuteronomy that God took care of you while you were guilty. He fed you, he clothed you, and you didn't even, the soles of your feet, the soles of your sandals didn't even wear out. That's how gracious God is to the guilty. And he fed them the bread of angels every single day. That's pretty good stuff, don't you think? And if we started treating people who are guilty the way God does, we might see a little bit of difference. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in mercy. His hesed is super abundant, never ending, as the text says over and over and over. As I've said more than once, those people who don't believe that there's any grace in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as they call it, just simply never read it. So, all right. Uh, Yahweh has forgiven Nineveh, as we said, on the exact same basis. Hesed is not limited It's God's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he can do with his hesed what God wants to do with it. All right? Now, there's some other stuff from that narrative in Exodus 32 through 34 floating in the background. And that golden calf thing is, is like the Genesis 3 of the history of Israel. It is a story that pops up over and over and over and over throughout the Hebrew Bible. It is the fall of Israel. It is cheating with the bellhop on the honeymoon. That's what it is. Okay, We've we got to get this in our head so we understand the story, our own story. And so... Uh, <laughs> What happens in Exodus 32, and you can read it from now until doomsday, just like you can Jonah chapter 2. Jonah never repented. Israel never repented either. Israel never repented. There was one basis and one basis alone that Israel did not die that day. And that is God had mercy on them. Hesed is the name of the game. Salvation does indeed belong to 
the Lord. And this is something the Apostle Paul believes in. When he starts talking about Israel in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where does he go? He goes to the golden calf to talk about it. And he says, you want to know what? <laughs> God's call and his promises are irrevocable. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And where does that come from? Moses, I mean, Paul is doing what Jonah's doing. He is quoting the earlier text. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy is Exodus chapter 32. And God did have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He didn't blow them up. He didn't kill them. In fact, it turns into the highest moment of revelation in the Hebrew Bible of the character of God. What happens is this, going on into chapter 4. And God saw their deeds, how they turned from their evil ways. Then God relented, or God turned. This is the, a word, important word. He turned from the evil that he said he would do to them. Just like he was going to do evil to the Israelites, he was going to blow them up. Okay? Then, this is the end of chapter 3, and chapter 4 begins here. Then, a great evil. Not just an evil. Most of our English translations, again, this is one of those superlative things you know, going on. Uh, and we have those poly words. We, man, we, I love those poly words. They're all over the place in this little book. Well, is Jonah mad, Wes? Yes, he's mad. Uh, but what else is he? He's exactly, he is the very thing that the Ninevites are. It's the same word all through there. He says, all right, the gray evil overcome, not just an evil, a good dog, like the storm. It was a great storm that went onto the sea. And it wasn't just evil that came on Jonah. It was a great evil that came on Jonah because of something. Because of something. And he knows the story. He's very religious. He's got the hymn book memorized. He's got the creed book memorized. He's, he's an Orthodox Jew. I thank you, God, that I am not like that sinner over there. Okay? I, I'm so glad of that. I'm glad I don't go to church with Bobby Valentine, you know what I mean? Uh, I am so glad of that kind of stuff. That's that. I'm so glad of that. Uh, so uh, then a great evil overcame the dove, and of course the dove is Jonah, the people of God, and became outraged. He finally does what? Something that God's been trying to get him to do from the beginning of the book. He cried. He was supposed to cry to God over Nineveh. But now that he sees that God has relented from the evil that he was going to do, and he did not do it. Uh, man, the, Nineveh, the narrator wants you to get that. And he did not do it. He did not do it. It's like, and he cried to Yahweh. And what is the content of this, this prayer, finally, that Jonah... Now we're getting the heart of Jonah. In Jonah 2, we do not have the heart of Jonah. In chapter 4, we have the heart of Jonah. Okay? Religion sometimes is far more intoxicating than grace. Okay? 
So he cried, he prayed, and he goes to that text from Exodus 32 and 33 and 34. If you were a Jew and you heard this text, they call it the 13 attributes. Okay? I'm ashamed that I grew up through most of my life in the churches of Christ and I never heard of this text at all. Um, it's embarrassing, frankly. This is the 13. This is the John 3.16. In fact, John 3.16 is Exodus 34, verse 6. When John says, for God is love, that's, that's Exodus 34. He didn't suddenly discover that. Okay? Uh, grace and truth is from Exodus 34, 1 John. Not 1 John, but John chapter 1, verse 17. It is Exodus 34. What Moses heard, we saw. It's what it is. And so all of a sudden, this is the most shocking text in the Bible. Then a great evil overcame Jonah, and he became furious, and he cried to Yahweh and complained. And what does he complain about? Oh, oh Yahweh, was not this exactly what I thought? Well, I was still in my own country this is why I at first wanted to flee to Tarshish. Remember, that's away from the presence of God. For I knew. I knew. It's not new to Jonah. Jonah knows God is merciful. Jonah knows God is gracious. He knows that. This is not a revelation to him. Because he knows his Bible. He went to vacation Bible school. <laughs> he sang the songs. Okay? He got his little star for the day. All right? And he says, I knew. And he quotes the God creed. I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, patient and abounding in steadfast love, Hesed. That's our word. You should know that rather than Solomon. <laughs> okay? Know that word. Don't know that Ace takes the accusative. Okay? <laughs> no, no Hesed. This is the word. Who relents? The evil. Now here, Jonah is, is quoting and referring to the very text in Exodus 3, 2, 14. He knows his Bible too. I knew that you relented. I know the story of Moses. You relent. And now what happens? So then. So then. And again, we're reading this. This sheds all kinds of light on chapter 1 when he says, throw me overboard. Okay? We talked about that yesterday, the mirror structures, the whole nine yards. So then Moses, uh, Jonah says, Yahweh, take my life. I am better off dead than alive. This is shocking. I just, 
I don't even, I thought, how can I try to make us see how shocking this actually is? And just imagine in an evangelical in the church in, in America today, imagine Tim Tebow <laughs> getting on TV and writing down John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You remember he played in a football game and had John 3.16 underneath his eyes. And he walks over here on the, on the ground and he, and he writes it. And, and then he spits on it. That's what Jonah has just done. Okay? It's hard to imagine how shocking this is. This is so shocking. Jews have wrestled with this for, for millennia. When, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and they, that's before... Or Jesus, you know. In the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of the book of Jonah, there is a, a pause here. Because, again, as I said yesterday, people in the ancient world, they didn't have their own copy of the Bible. It was read out loud to them. That's what Jesus does in Luke 4. You all remember that, right? The scroll was given to him. He didn't bring it. Okay, The scroll was given to him, and he reads it. And then he gives it back to the... To, uh, uh, the attendant. And in that copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is this pause because when you're reading it, this is so shocking. You're supposed to just sit there and gasp. And even in the Masoretic text, which is the modern Hebrew Bible, there is a space here, a pause. Because when you're reading it orally, you're supposed to stop cannot believe that this one who we call a prophet and the author never does you're supposed to gasp this is shocking you just confessed the God creed and you said now it would be better off for me to be dead wow this is shocking shocking the God creed is everywhere in the Hebrew Bible. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. All these references in the, in the Psalter. Because, and, and Jonah has the song book. He's got the hymnal memorized. Remember what I was saying? That? This, he, could do, he knows this stuff. And, and not only there. Again, but you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is, this is our word of Hesed right here. Every time you see the word uh, the words steadfast love, the NIV is very lame on this. It usually just says love. Sometimes it will have unending love, but most times just love. But steadfast love is really not an adequate translation either, but at least you know that you're seeing the word hesed. And it's like a slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 86, 15, Lamentations 3, 22, on and on and on and on you can go. This is all over the Hebrew Bible. And then, okay, for the Lord, outside this altar, in, in something else, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 9. On and on we can go. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. And Nehemiah is talking about the golden calf. It says, okay, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, also see verse 31. This is everywhere in the Hebrew Bible. And Jonah quotes it and says, I knew you were a God 
who are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and relents. Now just kill me. Because I don't want to live in a world where if you are king, and this is what it means for you to be king, and you run a world like this on the basis of your kingship, I don't want to be in it. Because you made them equal to me. And it's not just, again, it's not the Methodist next door. It's not the Buddhist next door. It's not, it's not, it, th this is the enemies. So, the mashups, Moses versus the dove. We hinted at this already. The dove, G Jonah, Yonah, acts and believes Hesed belongs to Israel. But Yahweh has extended Hesed to those outside the covenant. I think this has profound implications uh, for our story. God is God. And God can do what God wants that is in accord with his own character. Okay? Salvation does belong to the Lord. Jonah knows, Exodus 32, verse 14. Jonah, uh, and again, the people in the post-exilic community, the music is in their head. It's all there, and it's coming together. And it's like, ah, this is not the one. This is not the sermon I wanted to hear, author of Jonah. I want to hear why the Ninevites are going to hell today. Okay? I grew up on those sermons, by the way. The Baptists are going to go to hell. Um, it's kind of bad that uh, uh, as someone near and dear to me once said, uh, kind of sad about those Baptists uh, that they're the way they are because sometimes they do, do some pretty good stuff. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> so the Lord... Yahweh passed before him, and he proclaimed the name. And that's Exodus 34, 6. I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in hesed, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And he mentions the word hesed twice. And he's slow to anger. Now, the author of Jonah, as he tells the story, he omits that line, slow to anger. Because Jonah is the living embodiment of God's patience. God does not nuke Jonah. Okay? Just like he did not nuke Israel. So, anyway, my time is running low, so we're not going to do... But what happens, and here's the sharp contrast between Jonah and Moses. Moses is interceding for Israel putting his life on the line, and he even says, okay, if you're going to blot somebody out today, why don't you just do that to me? Kill me and let them go. Okay? And God says, you know, that's not the way it's going to be. I'll punish those who need to be punished. I'll do what I want to do. But he says, I will do the very thing that you asked me to do. I forgive them. That's what he did. And so he goes back down. He brings the new... new uh, Tablets, he comes back up and he says, Okay, God, now you've done this. I want you to show me your glory. Show me your ways. That's, that's the words. Show me your ways. 
And that word ways shows up all over in the Hebrew Bible too. The ways of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, the ways of the Lord. What are the ways of the Lord? God revealed them to Moses in Exodus 34. And the ways of the Lord are the 13 attributes. These are the ways of the Lord. And so when Jonah hears or confesses what God said to Moses, he wants to die. When Moses hears the word of the Lord or the 13 attributes, what does he do? He falls on his face and he worships. Grace is not something that makes us better than somebody else. Grace makes us grateful. It makes us worshipful. And Moses falls on his face and he worships the Lord. That's the only response to the God creed is worship. But Jonah wants to die. So Jonah confesses and the shock of all shocks, he says, Yahweh, take my life. I am better off dead. It's shocking. It's silence and pause. And I've said all that already. The patient, slow to anger stuff. Jonah is the living object lesson of the truth that the God created. Yahweh is slow to anger. I have a, have a rabbi friend. His name is Yaakov Smodel. And he made this statement to me probably 10 years ago. And he said, you know what? If your apostle Paul was half the student of the Hebrew Bible that you guys claim that he is, he would not had to become a Christian to know that God is merciful. And of course, he's reacting to a Protestant Paul. Uh, <laughs> I want to throw that out there. <laughs> a Protestant Paul. He's not reacting to the actual Paul. That, and of course, we have made Paul into a Protestant. But this is true. Slow to anger. Jonah is the God creed on this side. The slow to anger God. God is patient with Jonah. And what does he do? It echoes again, not Deuter uh, Exodus 34, but Deuteronomy 9, which is also talking about the God creed. Not the God creed, but the golden calf. He says, as uh, Moses says, Jonah has been rebellious against Yahweh as long as he has known you. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 24 and if you go and you read verses 4 through 6 um, it says you know it's not because of your righteousness some people don't even know this is in the bible but it says you know it's not because of your righteousness that i've chosen you it's not not because you're 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 better than anybody else when you're going into the promised land it's not even because of your integrity because you are a stiff-necked people it's because i love you and I keep my covenant of love to you. And Moses will actually say that two times. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse uh, 7, and then again in verse 9. The covenant of love, covenant of love, covenant of love. Because God's married to Israel. You love your wife, right? That's what you're supposed to. So, Jonah, all of a sudden, God says to him, uh, Jonah? Is it, is it right for you to be mad? Is it right for you to be evil? 
And notice, in the story, Jonah, once again, climbs up. He does not acknowledge God, and he does not pray. Instead, what he does is he goes outside the city, and he does this. Then Jonah built a booth. He built the booth. <laughs> this is one of those polywords. He, he, the author could have just said he built a tent. He built a sack, a, sh- a shack. He could have said that. He, he, he could have said he built a lean-to. Okay, but that's not what the author says. Because the author knows that you have music in your head and you know the stories. And he's wanting you to do something in your head that maybe Jonah wasn't even thinking about. He says, he goes outside, he makes himself a booth and had sat down in its shade, which is interesting. Remember that this is something to provide shade until he would see what might happen in the city. Now, Jonah knows God has forgiven the people in the city. They don't know that. Jonah does. He goes out and he celebrates. This is the word... This booth is the word for that little thing that Israel was supposed to go camping out in the wilderness for the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And he goes out and he builds a booth. He's, ironically, he's, he's celebrating the tabernacles. Okay? He just told God that I hate you because you uh, are gracious and merciful, but I'm going to go build myself a booth. Now, what's so interesting about this is that the Feast of Booze is all about God's grace. Okay? All about God's grace. And here, the author knows you know these stories. He knows that you know this stuff about booths. Okay? Every seven years, in the Sabbath year, the year that celebrates that we have been liberated, the year that celebrates that God has rescued those nobodies who they were killing our children so every seven years the sabbath year we celebrate what god has done in a special way we do that every week okay just like we have the lord's day we take the lord's supper every week well you know what israel did that too they did that every shabbat they remembered what god did on the exodus and he also remembers the creation of the world but every seven years we come along and in the sabbath year we Read the story. We read the story. And as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, we read the story, and it's going to mention children and other people, and it says, for those who do not know it. You read the story. You read the Torah. During the Feast of Booths. And then also, Moses tells us, Something else that happens every year for Feast of Booze, not every seven years, but every year the Feast of Booze is where you are supposed to come together and you are in your little suko and you bring in the widows and you bring in the orphans and you bring in the aliens and you feast in the presence of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, 
this is a big deal because you've got a bunch of people who just did what Jonah refused to do. They repented. You have a perfect opportunity to share the story with them. You have the perfect opportunity to invite them to be hospitable. Jonah, do you remember who you are? Are we going to bless the nations or are we going to be a curse to the nations? And when we get to the prophet Zechariah, it is the Feast of Booze where the nations are flooding and coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booze with the Israelites and bring in sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. And here Jonah's going out there and he's built a booth. And what is he doing? He's waiting to watch God to change his mind about that overturning of his heart so that he will blow them to hell anyway. But he's gone to church because I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of heaven who made the land and the sea. That's who I am. Sometimes we are far more religious than we are gracious. Saving the dove. I'm going to fly through this real quick. Yahweh in his head has already saved Jonah one time. The fish is not an instrument of damnation in the story. The fish is God's instrument to save Jonah from himself. Jonah wants to be dead. God won't let him die. He wants to die, but God won't let him die. God loves Jonah. Remember, Jonah is the beloved one. And so, then Yahweh Elohim appointed a bush to grow. It grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to deliver him from his evil. God wants to save him. And it says, Jonah rejoiced just as he rejoiced in the fish. He's singing and happy in the fish, but greatly over the bush. But Elohim appointed a worm just as dawn was breaking the next morning. It attacked the bush and it withered away. And as the sun rose, God appointed a burning east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head and he became faint. So he did it again. So he begged. He begged that he might die. And he said, it is better. I am better off dead than alive. And God says to Jonah again, which Jonah never answers, is it right for you to be angry? I'm king. Are you jealous that I'm generous with my own money? You remember that? And he replied, well, it is right for me to be angry enough to die. I just don't like the way you run the universe, God. Because, and, and in the book of Jonah, it's not that God lets uh, uh, bad things happen to good people. It's that good things are happening to bad people. So here we go. This is how I want to end it. Uh, Jesus and Jonah. Uh, Abraham is a priest. He's praying for the guilty. He's praying that Yahweh will not destroy them. Moses is 
the priest. And he is praying to Yahweh that Yahweh not destroy the guilty. And Jesus is the priest of priests. The priest of priests is what we call the high priest. He's the priest of priests from the kingdom of priests. Israel is the kingdom of priests. Every Jew is a priest. And priests intercede on behalf of the guilty. They don't do that for the innocent. You go to the priest when you are what? You're guilty. You need intercession. You need mercy. And so, Jesus is the priest of priests from the kingdom of priests. And Jesus, the priest of priests, does what Abraham does. And he does what Moses does. And he doesn't do what Jonah did. He prays for the guilty. As Moses prayed for the guilty at the supreme moment of revelation of the love of God in the Hebrew Bible, the priest of priests prays for the guilty at the supreme revelation of the love of God in the New Testament. He's hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Not only does he say that, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's where the Ninevites are. That stuff about the 120,000 right hand, you know, we read that. We put that word hand in there, and we, we think that's talking about children. It's not talking about children. It's talking about adults who don't know right from wrong. Okay? And we're going to, I think, end there. And um, our dude is not here. Where's our dude? <laughs> oh, he's in there. Hey, we're going to talk until he comes back. <laughs> uh, well, you know, anybody while he's gone uh, have a question or anything, comment? Uh, and if you do, you have to speak up because I'm prop practical deaf. So. All right, that means you got to speak really up. Okay. I'm going to come back there. Assyrians were not idiots. Okay. Uh, Ashurbanipal, uh, he's the guy who created that 
that library uh, that we found accidentally in the 19th century. And <clears throat> Ashurbanipal believes that he uh, uh, was wiser than we would say Solomon. He believed that he was the wisest man on the, on the world because he learned how to read. And that's why the library was there, because he wanted to collect all this stuff. And he even writes, this is in the, the tablets, you can read it, um, that he has the secrets that none of his predecessors had because he knew the secret art of the scribes. He could read. And that means they couldn't cast a spell on so at any rate, the Ninevites, or the Assyrians, were unbelievably advanced for their day and their time. Uh, hardly some, uh, um, some idiots, very, very, for their time, technologically advanced. I mean, that's how they, they whipped up on everybody. Um, so anyone else? All right. Well, I, we're, we're hanging out, you know, and, and I always think it's kind of interesting and, you know, the 100, 120,000 persons and then also the cattle. Well, okay. <laughs> I do know why the cattle are mentioned, okay, the animals. Uh, animals are important to God. And this, again, is part of the story. We got the song going in our head. When God was about to blow up the world already once before, he saved the animals. Okay, that's in the in the ark narrative. And in Genesis nine, the first time a covenant is made in Scripture, God makes the covenant with the world, and He promises the animals that He is not going to destroy the animals on account of human sin. And this shows up all over in the Hebrew Bible. If you go over to Jonah chapter two, not Jonah, but uh, Joel chapter two. Uh, you're going to find the animals there. They're praying. Uh, the fact it's the same word here in the book of Jonah. They're crying out uh, to God. And um, uh, then in the text that is quoted by Peter, uh, which is verses, uh, what is that, 17 and 18? No, that's in Acts chapter 2. It's 28 and 29 in uh, Joel. But if you back up to verse 19, uh, all of a sudden, Yahweh comes around after they have quoted the God Creed. And they, have, they, they, re, they do this repentance thing, and it says, who knows, God's, you know, he's gracious, he's merciful. And all of a sudden, God says, and it's Yahweh, he proclaims good news. And there's three targets for grace. He addresses the earth, O soil, O earth. And then the animals, you animals. And then the people. So you got the earth, you got the animals and the people, and God says, I'm going to save you. In Hosea chapter 2, you have, uh, again, alludes to the covenant with the animals in Genesis chapter 6, or chapter 9, where Hosea says <clears throat> that in that day, I am going to make a covenant with the animals on your behalf. That is Israel. So this is a promise to Israel, saying, you know what? I'm going to promise the animals that I'm not going to blow you up. That's what I'm going to do. Because, and in that day, I'm going to destroy the weapons of war because the earth and the fish, the whole nine yards, are dying because of your sin. Your sin. And so God promises the animals that he's going to take care of them. 
You go read Psalm 104, and Psalm 104, which is the longest meditation on creation in the Bible outside of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, God loves the animals. Um, And so here, the way the book of Jonah actually ends with that phrase, it's almost as if God is saying to Jonah at this particular stage, or really the narrator is saying to the people of God, do you want God to cease to be God? If God actually does destroy those animals, he's breaking his covenant with those who are innocent. They have nothing. And so, do you want God to cease to be God? No, I want God to be God. And so, um, that is what's going on there, at least as I understand it. And hope that makes sense. Casper, you know, I've told him to repent and be baptized several times. Um, and every time I do, he just kind of looks at me and says, you know what, I'm God in this house. So, But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming out. Uh, thank you.